You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. And today I am going to talk about something that's incredibly dear to my heart and incredibly exciting to me. And I've asked Adam, my husband, to join me because it felt like that would be quite a good dynamic to discuss my new baby, which is my new book. New baby is a bit of a new announcement. (laughs) It's a rather terrifying prospect. I'm going to do with me. As you know, books are your babies, as you know better than anyone. And this baby has been two years in gestation, so even longer than a baby. And it just arrived literally, literally this morning with a courier of pre-copies, which is incredibly exciting to see. So I just thought it would be nice if Adam could kind of ask me about it rather than having a monologue, which would feel a bit megalomaniacal. I thought it would be nicer if he asked me a few questions so I could describe why I'm excited about it. Well, congratulations. Thank you. What number book is this of yours? Oh, don't ask me. I think it must be about 12. Oh, yeah, maybe even more, 13, 14. I haven't counted recently. 13, 14. So it's exciting. It's a very, very beautiful, handsome thing called A Year Full of Veg, A Harvest for All Seasons. And it's in a series, isn't it, that it's sort of midway through a series, in fact, that yes. you're doing. Yeah. Tell me about that. So the first one in the series that I did that came out two springs ago was called A Year Full of Flowers. And the basis of that book was that I'm somebody who really thrives off color, abundance, and growing things. And what I found is an awful lot of books tend to, including some of my own, tend to concentrate on, I don't know, tulips to dahlias, you know, sort of abundant April till abundant October. But for me, if you really yearn for growth and color, then it's worth having things and consciously growing things for February and March as well, and also very much for October, November, into December. So it truly is a year full of flowers. So it it covers those key six months in the middle of the year, but it also covers the shoulders of the year and being able to grow reliable things that flower early and late. And rather similarly, a year full of veg, the whole theme about it again is rather than just being about lovely tomatoes and sunny summer harvest of courgettes and broad beans and peas and carrots, which is all lovely, it's a little bit about that, but more it's that literally year-round in this country, we can grow things that are just as happy from October until April that genuinely thrive better in cold, grey and wet conditions than they do in hot, dry and sunny conditions. And that was just such a revelation to me when I started growing now nearly 30 years ago that there were plants like Mitsuna, like the mustards, like certain ones of the lettuce, which are completely happy growing when it's cold, grey and pretty dark. And I can go out and pick just as much on October, November day as I can on a June, July day here. And for me, that's thrilling. And so 
I suppose that's one of its main philosophies. I'm having a bit of a monologue now, aren't I? Well, you said you didn't want a monomaniacal monologue, but you're not making a bad job of it. (laughs) I could go and have a cup of tea at this point. No. No, (laughs) Tell me, you know, people might say, hmm, vegetable growing, I think we know about that. We've heard about that before, haven't we? There have been quite a few books about that. Why? Why should I get yet another Well, it's true that I think what happened with COVID and lockdown is, of course, we're all stuck at home. And many, many people, particularly people who weren't necessarily gardeners, suddenly thought, gosh, I'm going to start using my garden space to garden, but also to grow veg. So there was quite a sort of flowering of vegetable books in 2021 and in 2022 a little bit. And in a way that slightly put me off because I've been wanting to write, I wrote a vegetable book actually um, 15 years ago and I've been wanting to write another one, but I wasn't sure. But anyway, then I was convinced because the thing is what we do here, I feel is genuinely worth writing about, which is that we have now been trialing edible crops here for 30 years. So we moved here on May the 1st, 1993. So this will come out in 2023, a a few months before, so literally 30 years later. And all over that time, we've been trialing different salad leaves, different types of kale, (laughs) different types of tomato, different types of cucumber, and on and on I can go. And I want to write about that because I want to get that information out to last in a way and to help inform what people decide to grow. Because when I set off, You know, I, for instance, went to dinner with Christopher Lloyd at Great Dixter, who's a wonderful guru of mine, and he gave me a bowl of salad with seven different chicories in it. And I was so blown away, I came back, rushed off, bought lots and lots of different chicories, grew them all, used almost the whole veg patch, and my children happened to hate bitter tastes, and so did you. So we didn't eat a single one. They all got fed to the chickens and onto the compost heap. That's a mistake. That was a waste of time. So I would say grow things that are easily productive and really exciting and tasty to eat. And your thing, which I've I've heard this phrase now for three lovely decades, is cut and come again. Yes. If you cut it, it will grow. Yeah. Well, I do really firmly believe, as I do with flowers, don't fill your ground, in my view, with things that you only get one crop. So I love growing potatoes, but you can grow them in a container if you want. But also, once you've eaten the potatoes, you've eaten the potatoes. Similarly, carrots, similarly, cauliflower, similarly, cabbage, similarly, even Brussels sprouts, okay? So with all those, you get the harvest and then it's done. Whereas if you don't, in fact, grow Brussels sprouts, but you go flower sprouts, they, in fact, turn out to reshoot. They are, to a degree, cut and come again. If you don't grow cabbage, but you grow kale, if you break it off the main stem, what you'll find is that just below the leaf scar will be another baby kale leaf, which will then continue to grow. Those aren't hugely productive, but there are other things like Mitsuna, which I've already mentioned, or the cut and come again lettuces, which if you pick the outer leaves, but leave the heart, leave the heart intact, that will then form more leaves or my desert island, or I always say if I was ever sent to prison, which hopefully I won't be, and I had to feed my prison wing with food, I would take a packet of Swiss chard. And that is because... (laughs) That would be like being in prison twice. Why? What? Chard. Oh, don't be silly. Chard is absolutely (laughs) delicious. 
And you can put it in a bechamel sauce. You can put it in pasta with nutmeg and creme fraiche <laughs> and parmesan. You can make a gratin with it like they do in Provence where you put mussels in the base. It's the most delicious vegetable. And you know, there's one thing I really dread, which is being stuck on a desert island with you. It would be salad day in, day out, <laughs> three meals a day. Where's the steak and chips? Well, there'd be fish because <laughs> hopefully I, not you, I'm not going to be binary here. I would go off and, and catch some fish. But anyway, salad and fish is very delicious. But the point of what we're wittering on about is that all the plants you want to grow are cut and come again. So if you harvest them in the right way, the root forms more leaves. And so you can go back a week later and you can pick from the same plant and it's miraculous. And you know, it could be flat leaf parsley, it could be coriander, it could be chervil. There are so many things that that applies to. It could be spinach, it could be rocket. You know, all those things are cut and come again. And what they give you is incredibly high level of square inch productivity. And it's just the most rewarding and easy thing. So even if you've only got a window box or a pot on your doorstep or whatever, it's still worth growing. And they just go on giving more and more and more food. And I think one of your points is that a vegetable patch or an allotment doesn't need to be a sort of hideous thing with plastic bottles upside down on bamboos. No. You can really make a vegetable garden into a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And I write about this a lot in the book, which is that when you come to Perch Hill, you come round the curve and the drive here, and the most prominent place is actually the vegetables garden, the kitchen garden. And what it is, is over this uh, south and east-facing bank, and... It just looks abundant and beautiful. And that's because I've concentrated on that. And I think the main threads of the beauty of the edible garden here are there's loads of flowers, and that's fantastic for companion planting. So we grow loads of edible flowers anyway. But through that, we will grow things like salvias because they're brilliant for the pollinators, and that keeps the garden really healthy. But also, I'm a really great believer in making wooden plant supports. So we don't use a single bamboo cane here. Everything is, is harvested here or bought locally. So we make silver birch nests. We make hazel teepees for our beans and arches. Everything is, is made quite sculptural and even architectural. And for me, that is so incredibly important. So it's as much about almost designing a building of plants as it is about it being edible. And for me, the, the structure, the architecture and the beauty is really fundamentally important to the enjoyment of a kitchen garden. So I write quite a bit about that. And it doesn't have to be a nature hostile zone. I mean, I often think of a vegetable plot as somewhere that is sort of rather brutally exclusive of anything that's going to hurt these precious vegetables. But that isn't the way you do it. Not at all. And so... In some of the trials here, we've consciously trialed companion planting, you know, this thing of symbiotic relationships. So, for instance, um, at two ends of the garden, we planted the same bean, which is called Blue Lake Climbing, which is the best climbing bean you can possibly grow, which is a round, like a French bean rather than a flat runner, which I prefer. And we had a teepee growing up with late-sown, late late-flowering sweet peas. And then the other end of the garden, we had it on its own. And what we found is the scent of the sweet peas were drawing in the pollinators, which 
then upped the pollination of more of the flowers of Blue Lake climbing. So we increased our productivity by, I think when we weighed it, it was just between 20 and 25%. And so not only does it look more lovely, but actually it's efficacious, you know, actually has an effect. And so similarly now with our tomatoes, which are actually in the greenhouse, and so sometimes pollination can be a problem. You want to draw the bumblebees in. So we consciously draw the bumblebees into the greenhouse with things like minilobata, which is a lovely, beautiful climber, or even one of the ip- the other ipameas, which is, you know, that huge uh, purple trumpet. And there's one called Grandpa Rot that doesn't shut at noon, which a lot of them do. And they draw in the pollinators, which then feast on the pollen in the tomato flower and pollinate one. So the crop again increases. And then this year, we very much left all the vents and doors open. And so we actually got a pair of blackbirds who just made their house in in the greenhouse. And they went in under the tomatoes. They didn't do any damage to the tomatoes whatsoever, but they kept completely on top of the aphids, the slugs and the snails. Now, hopefully we don't have that many in there, but the whole... I used to celebrate when I'd go in and they do that thing that hens do, which is that they were putting the mulch over the path, so you had to sweep it every morning. But actually by doing that, they'd been through and eaten any of the grubs and bugs that we don't want in the greenhouse. And so we keep this sort of healthy environment by encouraging nature, encouraging flowers, encouraging beauty, and it all seems to work incredibly well. And we're lucky here that we don't have pigeons, which I know lots of people do. But the whole thing just becomes then an edible, productive vegetable shop, but also full of flowers, full of life, full of birds, full of nature, full of invertebrates, full of loveliness. Full of veg. Full of veg. Thanks for listening to Grow Cookie to Range. And I'm so excited about my book coming out, and I hope some of you are too. Next week, actually, I'm going to be talking to someone about veg again, and that's Jane Scotter from Fern Vera, who was on the podcast about 18 months ago. And she's unbelievably knowledgeable about interesting and unusual veg, and so I'm really looking forward to that. So join us then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com.